Uh, let's open the scriptures together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23 is where we are now. Um, and we just got a whole bunch of new Bibles put in the seats in front of you. If you want to follow along in a copy of the scriptures, the New Testament starts about three quarters of the way through. First book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. If you guys have been here the last few weeks, you know that um, we're walking through Jesus' origin story um, as told by the evangelist Matthew. Um, and he gives Jesus roots. He shares his genealogy and where he descended from. He's going to show, as we'll see, where he came from. Um, he is telling us um, Jesus' origin story and also showing how each of these details fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And so that's what we've titled this sermon series. Um, and we're going to see today, Matthew used that word in relation to prophecy shared centuries before the New Testament was written, that Jesus fulfills it. So we're picking back up the story. You guys remember Jesus born in Bethlehem. He's exiled in Egypt in order to escape King Herod. And now we're going to see the story pick back up today. The Lord calls him back from Israel out of Egypt. So chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. The angel appeared in a, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. The angel said to Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, Joseph was afraid to go to Judea. So being warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee in the north, and he went and lived. Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do you know who someone is? How do you know who someone is? You think about when you first meet someone. What are some of the common details that we start to find out about them? Perhaps first is simply their name, what they're called, and then maybe something about their family, who they're related to. Very often next is their job, what they do. And all of this knowledge starts to give shape and fill in the details of who the person is. Well, another basic question, along with what they're called, who they're related to, and what they do, is where they're from. So are you from around here? Where'd you grow up? It's almost instinctive to ask something like that because we have this almost intuition that if we know where they're from, then we know them, or at least we know a big part of them. Well, it's no different for Jesus. Matthew, as one of the gospel writers, he's presenting Jesus to us. 
He's telling us who Jesus is, and that means he's got to tell us where Jesus is from. Except it's more than that. It's more than that, because where Jesus is from fulfills ancient prophecies from the Old Testament. So earlier in Matthew chapter 2, we saw how Jesus' birthplace of Bethlehem, it fulfills Micah chapter 5 verse 2, that prophecy that said a shepherd king would be born in that small town of Bethlehem. And then we saw how Jesus spent time in Egypt, escaping from King Herod. That was in fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And today we see that upon Jesus' return from Egypt, he settles down in Nazareth. And that also is in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. How do we know who someone is? Ask them where they're from. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, lived a brief stint in Egypt, and his hometown was Nazareth of Galilee, all showing us who he is, that he is the long-awaited Christ, that he is God's true king. Now, the way Matthew phrases this is peculiar. Normally, when something happened in Jesus' life and it fulfilled Scripture, Matthew would say something like, this took place to fulfill what was written by the prophet, and then Matthew would quote a specific verse from a specific prophet. But this time, if you look at verse 23, Matthew writes, and Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that, was, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. So two things stand out here. First, instead of saying what was spoken by the prophet, singular, it says what was spoken by the prophets, plural. It's the only time we see this. Secondly, you'll notice there are no quotation marks around what Matthew says has been fulfilled. He shall be called Nazarene is not in quotation marks like the other Old Testament verses that are directly quoted previously in Matthew 2. And that's because he shall be called a Nazarene is not a direct quotation of any Old Testament verse. So what's going on here? Well, it seems that instead of quoting a specific verse from a specific prophet, Matthew seems to be capturing a broader theme that spread amongst numerous prophets. And that theme was that the promised king of Israel would be looked down upon. That theme that spread amongst many prophets is that ultimately the Messiah of God would be rejected by Israel. Because you see, the label a Nazarene was a pejorative term. It was related to where a person was from, Nazareth, but it was also a put-down. It was also an insulting label to call someone a Nazarene. So, for example, I am from the South, and hopefully what I'm going to say won't offend too many of you guys. We were wrong to do this. I'm sorry. It was before I became a Christian. But we would use the term Yankee as an insult. Yankee, of course, just being a label for someone who was from the north, but in the south, it could be used pejoratively to offend someone. Like perhaps you've heard someone use the term hillbilly in a similar way. Hillbilly, of course, just refers to somebody who's from the hills of Appalachia, but it also is a term that can be used to insult somebody for their 
intelligence or lack thereof. Well, likewise with calling someone a Nazarene. Nazareth was this distant, irrelevant, backwoods town, maybe 500 people, a true nowheresville. And for reasons that I don't think we really know, this town just had a bad reputation. And if you wanted to insult someone in ancient Judea, you might call them a Nazarene, just like me and my friends wrongly would call people we didn't like Yankees. Or you might call someone you think is stupid a hillbilly. For example, in the Gospel of John, a man named Philip becomes a follower of Christ. John chapter 1, Jesus' ministry begins, and this man named Philip becomes a follower of Christ. He puts his faith in Jesus. And Philip then wants to introduce his friend Nathaniel to Jesus. And it's described like this. This is John chapter 1, verses 45 through 46. It says, Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael then said in response to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael is essentially saying, It's a cesspool. And what comes out of a cesspool? Sewage, like the worst stuff you can imagine, the grossest stuff you can think of. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, but that was Nazareth's reputation. Only unworthy things, only disreputable people come out of Nazareth, and that's where Jesus came from. He would be called a Nazarene, and Matthew says this is in fulfillment of ancient scripture. Because if you study the prophets, if you study the prophets and what they say about the Messiah, the coming Savior, sure, they talk about his royal lineage. Sure, the prophets talk about his righteous rule. Sure, they talk about his great salvation and his ultimate victory. But the prophets also talk about how Messiah was despised. They also talk about how he'd be rejected, how he'd be unwelcomed even amongst God's people, Israel. So, for example, perhaps the most well-known example of this from the prophets is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. In the verses just prior to this, at the end of Isaiah chapter 52, the prophet indicates that he's speaking of this person that he calls the servant of the Lord, which is very often a messianic title. Well, Isaiah continues talking about the servant of the Lord in chapter 53, and he says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For the servant of the Lord grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. The servant of the Lord was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, he will be called a Nazarene. The servant of the Lord is going to be amongst those within society that are looked down upon, that are disrespected, that are counted unworthy. 
But friends, this is the mystery and beauty and wonder of the gospel. The servant of the Lord, the chosen one of God, the promised Messiah, he took upon himself our sin and shame and unworthiness in every way, even in where he was from, Nazareth. Because you see, the rejection of Christ, wrong as it was, the rejection of Christ, it was ultimately a part of God's plan to redeem us from our sin, to free us from our shame. And we can see this in that same chapter from Isaiah as the prophet continues. He says that the servant of the Lord was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. But, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon the servant of the Lord was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, this is the gospel. On the cross, the Nazarene Jesus took upon himself our sewage, our unworthiness, our iniquity, our transgression, so that we might then be counted worthy before God, so that we might then be counted noble and holy before God. Jesus removed those things from us, bore them on the cross, so that we could then be found righteous in Christ. And we've got to get this, church. We've got to get this about the gospel. Because every other religion is the exact opposite. Every other religion says, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to make yourself worthy by your good deeds. You've got to make yourself holy by your religious works. But friends, this is not good news. Because the truth is that we could never do enough good to even soothe our own consciences, let alone do enough good to satisfy a holy God. We could never do enough to quiet our own consciences, let alone could we do enough good to satisfy a holy God. But the good news is that we don't have to do enough good. The good news is that Jesus came and he lived the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, a life of perfect love, of perfect obedience. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, and then he died the death that we deserved, being pierced through on the cross for our transgressions, and then he rose from the grave victoriously proving that he is who he said he is. And now he calls people everywhere to trust in him, to experience the transforming power of his sacrificial love. Friends, that is gospel. That is good news. So yes, as Matthew tells us, as would have been shocking to his original audience, Jesus, the Messiah, is from Nazareth. And yes, he was then accordingly despised and rejected, but in the mystery and wonder of God, Jesus' rejection is our salvation. 
In his death is where we find life. On his cross is where we see sacrificial love like never before. He is a king like none other. So humble. He is a savior like none other. So gracious. And so I call on you. Trust in him. Receive his grace. Repent from trying to prove yourself. Turn away from these self-salvation projects, whether it looks like a formalized religion where you're trying to prove yourself before God by doing enough good, or whether it's by some sort of secular effort where you can prove yourself that you are worthy before God and others. Friends, it doesn't work. Our consciences will not be silent. They will continue to speak of our worthiness of condemnation until the day we die. God has put our conscience there for that reason. And so I urge you, come to the cross. Come to the Nazarene. Yes, he was one who we esteemed not. Yes, he was one of whom men hid their faces. He was despised. And yet it is this humble man wherein we find grace, wherein we find transformative love. I urge you, trust in him, make him the center of your life, and he will transform you. He will redeem you like no other religion can, like no other self-salvation project can. Come to Christ. Come to the Nazarene. Receive his love. Be transformed. And if you do, if you hear the Lord speaking in your heart, drawing you to him, we'd love for you to join us here. And be a part of this band of brothers and sisters pursuing Christ, seeking to continue to fulfill his purposes for us, making known this gospel in Royal Oak and beyond.